0: Hey everybody, welcome to West Seattle Christian Church Online. My name is Worth. If you're new, welcome. Thanks for joining us. And if not, welcome back. Today we begin our summer series focused on the narratives of the book of Genesis. And they are extremely important for our spiritual formation and identity in God and Christ. And uh, it's important that our knowledge and understanding of these stories is is, uh, that you view it integral to your theological view, not only to your orthodoxy. Your right belief regarding scriptures, uh, the scriptures that tell God's story, but also your orthopraxy, how you live out your identity as a follower of God and his story and and how it's presented in the scriptures. And just a heads up, after this series is complete, we'll be talking about the end of the story in the scriptures, Revelation. Uh, The beginning of the story and the end of the story are extremely important. And I'll tell you why. Because what you believe about how the story begins and what you believe about how the story ends is critical to how you live out your faith right now today because We live in between the beginning and the end We live in the middle of the story and it's important to care about this because it shapes how you live right now uh, So today we begin at the beginning But first let me give you a heads up on a few opportunities coming up on our calendar first next week monday evening may 24th we will be hosting a zoom discussion that we've been announcing for weeks now that's super important we'll be chatting about latasha morrison's book be the bridge uh, which is all about racial reconciliation and healing within the church and in the world and it's going to help us have a biblical framework as a church for restoration so i hope you can make it to that second though subject to change due to covid case increases in our community and that kind of thing. Our next in-person service will be on Sunday, June 6th. So please hop online and pre-register for that today. If you do that, it'll help us plan our setup accordingly. And once again, that service is gonna be family style. Uh, Kid City will not be open, but we'll have plenty of things for your kids to do during the service. Following that service at 11.30 a.m., uh, we'll have an in-person, in-person newcomers hangout that'll be socially distanced right in the worship center where you get to hear all about who we are and what we're about as a church. So if you're new with us, you're viewing us, you're hanging with us online on Facebook, on YouTube, on our app, anywhere else and you haven't and you're in town and you haven't been yet, I encourage you to come that day and uh, meet with us in person. And there's a sign up on, on our website as well for that. So please do sign up so we can plan accordingly and we will see you then. And fourth, last but not least, on June 6th when we gather for that Sunday, if you are coming to meet with us that Sunday, we encourage you to help us help the West Seattle Food Bank and the West Seattle clothesline program for the food bank uh, that is housed in our annex building down in our lower lot. Um, we will be collecting socks, underwear, t-shirts, shorts, that kind of thing. Um, they need to be gently used or brand new. Please bring them and drop them off in the bin in our lobby on your way in on June 6th and help us be the hands and feet in Jesus for the least of these in our community. All right. so. We're going to begin at the beginning, like I said, and in just a few minutes, we'll get to all the actual scriptures, but we need to handle some of the kind of technical background stuff first, especially in this first teaching in this series. Followers of Jesus believe the Word of God, the Bible, is inspired. And the Bible uses this term, inspired, or God-breathed, means breathed of God. We get this term from 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, which says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, God used human authors and their unique personalities in their unique contexts to communicate his message in different ways to specific people at specific times, using different forms of rhetoric and storytelling and genres of literature, and none of that negates that the scriptures are God-breathed that they are inspired. What that means is that the entire scope of the scriptures, all of it from beginning to end, is a story about someone, by someone, and that someone is God. And that's what makes his message, this message of the Bible authoritative and different and unique from everything else that's out there because it's his message. On the other hand, it's really good to think and talk about what inspired does not mean necessarily. Uh, Because we confuse the word inspired with the word accurate. Let that sink in for a minute. Don't confuse the word inspired with the word accurate or the word exact. Now, if you're new to this, this Christianity thing or following Jesus, this might not seem like a big deal. But if you've grown up in the church and you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe this notion ruffles your feathers a bit. And the reason this matters is because, is because sometimes God's first idea in his God-breathed authoritative message is not to speak to you about accuracy. We understand this when we read poetry, for example, in Romeo and Juliet. But soft what light through yonder window breaks, it is the east and Juliet is the sun. Classic, right? But Juliet is not the sun. It's inspired, but it's not precisely accurate. Or William Wordsworth in I Wandered Lonely as a Cloud. In this poem, he's talking about seeing a long row of daffodils. As an English major and a teacher, this was one of my dad's favorite poems, uh, and he would quote it all the time. It says this, Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, They stretched in a never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand I saw at a glance tossing their heads in sprightly dance. It's nice, right? But they weren't, there weren't as many daffodils as stars in the Milky Way. It's inspired, but it's not exactly accurate. So when we look at the God-breathed scriptures that tell the story God is telling about himself, he is not always interested in using whatever unique author's expression as his tool. He's not always interested in being accurate, but it is inspired. So when David in the Psalms says that he spent all night crying in his bed and floating in tears, some versions say he, he has flooded his bed with tears. Another version versions say I cause my bed every night to swim with tears. We don't believe that he's literally floating off of his bed because of the sheer amount of liquid pouring from his eyes. Right? What is this? It's called hyperbole. So when Jesus talks about a camel going through the eye of a needle in Matthew 19, or a plank being in your eye in Matthew 7, or in Matthew 5 when he says to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand that if they cause you to sin, does he literally mean this? No. We understand poetry. We understand hyperbole. It's in the Psalms. It's in the Song of Songs. There are genres in the Bible that aren't meant to be taken literally. You can't take the scriptures and make them fit every single situation in life, just like Legos. You just can't create systematic theology, which is trying to make sure the Bible is exactly and precisely consistent in each and every situation uh, throughout all time for every single human being. You can't make systematic theology out of the psalms or the proverbs or even the book of acts like completely because why because god is creative and he's artistic and genre matters and the scriptures can be inspired infallible inerrant without being precisely accurate words like infallible and inerrant are are really good infallible means that the scriptures are authoritative and inerrancy means that the scriptures are without error and we can affirm those things as true but they're not always useful and here's what i mean by that How, in those examples I just gave, how do certain biblical passages work themselves out in your life as infallible and inspired and inerrant? Scriptures like like the story of, maybe you've never heard this one before, in Judges 3, like the story of Ehud killing King Eglon while he was on the toilet. King Eglon was so fat that when Ehud came to assassinate him and buried his sword in his stomach, that the folds of fat closed over the sword so you couldn't even see it anymore. Side note, I'm pretty sure that's where George Martin got the idea for Tywin being murdered by Tyrion in the Games of Thrones, in the Game of Thrones. But here's another example. How in the world does anything and everything in Leviticus and Numbers work when it comes to the terms infallible and inerrant? I don't know. Here's what I'm getting at. They don't really work. But God breathed, that works because we're saying it comes from God and has something authoritative to say to us. And it includes all of the genre that's that's why genre matters if i'm going to hear the god-breathed message that matters and is a, and is authoritative i need to understand the genre and the context with which i'm working so the people of the bible wherever whatever date you want to put it early or late they were familiar with the genre of literature literature called creation narratives the land that god's people from was called Mesopotamia and it had creation narratives all over the place within different people groups living there. There was a Sumerian creation myth, Babylonian creation narratives, Egyptian creation narratives. So the people around there were used to these. One of the most prominent ideas in all of the creation narratives was that there was multiple gods, a pantheon of gods, and they those gods were really mad. They had anger issues and from their conflict, from their anger, The world and everything in it was created but then along comes a different creation narrative that has a god that speaks things into creation that says something different than those other stories and it changed people's whole perspective in other words we thought the world was this way but this this creation narrative about this god says it's not it's different this creator god is telling me It's good, beautiful, and ordered, and wonderful, and life-giving. And this this God wants us to be a part of it with him. Not only to be a part of it, but to, to partner with him in stewarding everything in this creation. And that changes everything. So, let's now jump into the scriptures and see what this means for us with that background. We'll start in the beginning. In the beginning, this is from Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created The word created is bara, the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit, the ruah of God, was hovering, merifet, over the waters. So right from the beginning, there's this watery chaos that where God is hovering over it and and it says God created everything out of nothing. Now, many scholars have pointed out that we see this kind of threeness here in the opening stanza of this creative narrative poem, this creation poem. God is creator, he baraz the heavens and the earth. God is spirit, this ruach merifetz, God is God who also speaks. He is the word, and when he speaks, things happen. So God, the creator, he speaks, and things happen. It's not out of chaos and fighting and anger and madness. He just speaks. And then it says, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. And what we see here is that dry land appears. And he calls the dry land earth and he calls the waters oceans or seas. And at the end, what I want you to see is that God said, he looks at it and says, God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation and planting yielding seeds, plants yielding seeds and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is in their seed, which is according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters and the seas, let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, or tov meod. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, if you were listening to this in the Hebrew and in the English, you can hear certain phrases repeating themselves. If you were Hebrew and listening to this in its original spoken form, you'd hear them even more clearly and more emphatically than we do in the English. And I'm talking about the refrains like this, evening and morning. But what's wrong with that? How does your day start? In the morning, right? So why is the phrase evening and morning? Why isn't it morning and then evening? Uh, Another rhythm we hear is this phrase, it was good. There's this cadence here. It was good, evening and morning. And I think it indicates that what we're reading here it's not like a W-2 form. It's not like an encyclopedia entry. It's not like a, 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 a lab report or something like that. So for the people who heard this over the last several thousand years before modern day, it was not read or heard as, this is how creation was made. Instead, this story, this poem, was about who made creation, and what is the nature of this creator God, and what he created. What's the relationship between them? This story was more about the who and the what, but not really about the how. Uh, so that's the first thing I want you to remember today. Now. The story also brings up resting. There's all this stuff about creating, and then there's this big thing at the end about this creator taking a rest. So the question is, is the creator tired? Has, has God run out of raw materials? To which we're kind of like, well, what? How, how can God get tired? Why does God need to rest? And this makes us go back and really take a look at what's being told to us here. Is it really a literal approach to creation? Or is there this poetic creation narrative genre? It's a narrative that's supposed to help us focus on the who and the what, not the how. Because if you take it literally, all sorts of problems rise up. Like in in day one when God creates light, but he doesn't create the source of that light until day four. And the only way we ever measure days throughout history is by the relationship of the earth to the what? The sun. And the sun, in this creation narrative, isn't brought into being until day four. And God explicitly says the reason in verse, is, is in verses 14 and 15, it's for that purpose, to measure each day and each year and each season. And, and all of that raises the question that kind of really fry your brain, which is, how do we even know the first three days are even days if he hasn't invented that until day four? My point here is that this story isn't what you probably thought it was about, or what maybe you've been told that it's about. It's, it's not about that. And as we start to look even closer, you'll discover that there's all kinds of rhythms here. Earlier, I mentioned this threeness that we see in the poem, the bara, the ruah, and the word. So when we look deeper, we see that there are other threes. During the first three days of creation, God separates different things. He Actually, actually he's not creating anything. He's just separating in those first three days. He separates light from darkness, waters above from waters below, land from sea. And in the next three days, what you see is that God, the things that he separated, that he's just separated, he fills them up. So there's all these three patterns in the story, but then there are are seven days in the story as well. And what's really interesting is that if you go even deeper, you'll find patterns of seven. And I want you to hang with me here as we pull this apart so that we can put it back together and come to some implications in the first few uh, lessons in this series. First, there are seven days of creation, but the phrase It was so, it also appears seven times in this poem, and so does the phrase, and God saw. The first stanza of the poem has seven Hebrew words in it. The second stanza has 14 Hebrew words in it. The third stanza has, yeah, you guessed it, 21 words in it. The word God and the word earth both appear 35 times in this creation narrative, which is seven times five. So there are patterns of three and then there are patterns of seven. And if you're a good Hebrew student and you catch on to the three and the seven, then you're going to ask, well, if I have a three and a seven, I wonder if there's any patterns of 10. Seriously, yes, this is in here. The phrases according to their kinds and to make, they both appear 10 times. The phrase, and God said appears 10 times. Three of those times, the phrase refers to people and seven of those times, the phrase refers to creatures. So the phrase let there be also appears 10 times. Three times in reference to things of heaven, and seven times in reference to things of earth. what's the point? Instead of just all this kind of number information, what's the point? Well, the point is this. This account, this story, it's a poetic creation narrative. It is an Eastern narrative, which means the underlying framework is all about learning truth through discovery. It is not about this deductive reasoning encapsulated in three points that break down the answer into a nice little neat nutshell like we do in these spiritual TED Talks we call sermons, like A plus B plus C equals D. Uh, an Eastern teacher will bury the truth of the story deep in it for those who will do the work to find it. And in this story, we have all these indications that are helping us to do that work, to find the deeper truths in the story. That's what all these repetitive, re- repetitive phrases and numbers are about. And that's what we that's what we should be seeking this deeper truth and so if you go back to what i said about separating and then filling it's not just that but it's about separating and filling in corresponding order even so for instance the sun and the moon and the stars on days four on day four are actually related to the light and the darkness on day one so you've got day one and day four connected and the fish and the birds on day five that's what's that's what goes in it, right? Fish and birds go in water and sky on day two, so day five and two are connected. And animals and humans on day six, well, they go in on land in day three, so six and three are connected. And this is where we'll start winding it down for this teaching today, because I know this is getting heavy. But this is very interesting. This separating and this filling, and how the verses correspond to each other, they form a literary structure uh, that we find throughout the Bible called a chiasm, where Two halves of something mirror each other. There's this parallelism here in some way, shape, or form. It's as if you had a piece of paper that you folded in half, and on each side there are parallels that match up and mirror each other. Genesis 1 has these structures that you can see, and they are actually very much in the New Testament as well. And in their simplest form, they just take what's called an ABBA form, or an ABCCBA form, like saying 1, 2, 3, 3, 2, 1. Or like saying, peanut, almond, pistachio, pistachio, almond, peanut, okay? However you want to say it, it's just a matching form with parallelism, okay? And it's really easy to see that in the first six days, and then we get to the tail end of day six, you see this parallelism, but at the end of day six, you have this creation of man, which doesn't correspond to something earlier in the A, B, B, A structure of the poem. It's like that creation of man is like this big fat literary wart that sticks out in the story. It doesn't match up to anything. And if you're an Easterner, you're going to hear all this as an original hearer of this story. You would notice the lack of parallelism at the end and you would immediately say, this story has to be between this mankind, humanity, and the relationship this humanity has to whatever the treasure is in the middle of the chaos." Because... That chiasm, the, the, the parallel parts of it, they fold in half and there's a center, there's a middle, the thing in the middle, there's always a treasure at the middle of the chiasm. The thing that's in the dead center of the symmetry of the two halves of the structure is really important. And they would have heard this and said, okay, humanity has to be connected to that. So here's the deal, you can literally ca- count the words in this poetic creation narrative and you can find the one that's in the dead center. And the center is the word moad. Some texts have the word for this as seasons in the english i like the way the new niv translation puts it i think it's more proper as sacred times the word moad is what is used for hebrew feasts or, or rituals or festivals a party it's also the word used for sabbath not the sabbath but there's different types of sabbaths the passover for example is a type of sabbath it's not the sabbath but it's a sabbath so Moad references festivals, parties, and these appointed sacred times. And it's this Moad, which is at the center, which means that Moad is the treasure. It's the so what's the relationship? That's the question you should be asking yourself right now. Why is Moad the treasure? Why is seasons, these sacred times, the treasure? The author is saying, the author of the story is saying there's a relationship between mankind and Moad. And what is that relationship? What does it have to do with you and me, with us, with humanity and this creator, with the, with the way we are and the way God intended us to be? What is this relationship all about? And here's a hint. It's about something very, very good, this Mo'ad, But we're going to get into that next week. Until then, I'm Pastor Worth for West Seattle Christian Church Online. Stay rooted deep in Christ and produce good fruit, my friends.